This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Indian Religions, a podcast here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, more about me at rajbalkaran.com if you're interested. Um, more importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Deepra Dandekar. Um, she is a research fellow at ZMO. We're talking about a brand new uh, Rutledge publication called Baba Padmanji vernacular christianity in colonial india uh, welcome back to the podcast Deepra. thank you if memory serves you were you, we had spoken about mm, a year and a half ago maybe um how did you get a second book out so quickly <laughs> <laughs> um i think that both the books were in a way written or conceptualized together because I think the amount of archival material that I came across, um, I came across an entire domain of uh, vernacular literature on uh, religion and conversion. And, um, and I had to sort of divide it into different kind of outputs or I had to plan my outputs better in order to be able to disentangle some of the ideas. So I think this book was in the making right from the beginning. I mean, many of these things come together. I had a very uh, a similar experience. Uh, rather than archival work, I, I look at um, Sanskrit texts. And in, in looking at the Devi Mahatmya and the Markandi Purana, I, while while writing the first book, which is my dissertation, actually while dissertating, I came across all of this material on Surya. And so it was sitting there and, and so that sort of was churned out and, and, mm. and for the most part thought through through dissertation became these two books. It's not such that I just conceived one for, conceived one from scratch and executed and published it within a year of the second. It was part of the same process. And, and um, so I, I really relate to that. I relate to having so much material. You're not quite sure what to do with it. It's too unwieldy for one project. Yeah. And, and yet it's too rich to shelf. Yeah. So you, you repackage it in some way or you, you, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, it's, that's great. Um, so, so what's the topic of your book? Like, what are you looking at? Um, you mentioned archival work. Um, let, maybe let's start here. What, what are the sources? Like, what's the data that you're looking at? I... Yeah, that's a good starting point. Um, So I think there are two approaches. Um, The first is um, when you write a biography, and this is a critical biography of uh, Padmanji's. Um, When you write a biography a century later, you are so respectful of the past that you end up not saying uh, bad things or you end up not being too critical. And I think one of the things that I tried to do was to be a little bit more historical in approach and not to just look at it in terms of his contributions, uh, but also in terms of his conundrums, his difficulties. 
and the material that I was looking at was a combination of two sorts. One was the material that was written, but was generated by Padmanji himself. He was very prolific. He wrote more than a hundred books. Um, not, not all of them were big books, but they were tracts, each of them 40 pages or 50 pages, um, and sometimes a bit more. And many of them were not completely original. He took fragments of thoughts from many different places that he had already written about, and he repackaged them as we do today with our materials and uh, brought them out strategically in order to counter a certain debate in the public that was going on at a certain point of time. And um, some of his essays are very unwieldy and long and broken up into parts. And the same essays are later compiled into books. So I don't think I looked at hundred books, it's not possible. I looked at about 16 to 18 of his main texts, which were philosophically and um, quite polemically oriented towards uh, the state of religion in the 19th century in Bobby presidency. The second sort of corpus that I looked at was materials that was written about Padmanji. People were of course very scared of him. He was a very dominating, not just, it was not just that he was, it was not about personal domination. He was just very influential. He was very influential. He was very educated. He was very well connected and networked. And the kind of things that he said, the kind of analysis that he did of the situation surrounding Hindu communities, especially Hindu women's lives, this was really hard to dismantle. This was hard to um, challenge. And in a way, for about 50 years in Maharashtra at that point of time, which was not Maharashtra, Bombay presidency at that time, he, he ruled the public domain about what was the nature of modern Hinduism that reformers who were from places like Prarthana Samaj or people who were educated from missionary institutions but wanted to reform were, were in a way more oriented towards reforming the position of women. And he had a lot to say uh, about that. And he was of course feared because he came down pretty heavily on people. And um, so this is a lot of context about texts that were written by him, texts that were written about him. And uh, reading all that, one realizes that a kind of a matrix, a kind of a, a networked web, a network matrix kind of emerges from all of these, which is interconnected. And so, it overlaps. The, you, you realize when you suddenly chance upon letters written by one to another, you realize they knew each other. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not so separated domain, uh, 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 like Hindu reformers were different, or um, Christians were different. I mean, this was not so separate as we may project backwards and imagine in really neat little communities. Conversion was a two-sided thing. A convert was a part of both Hindu and Christian society because Christian society was so nascent, was so new. And so many converts like Padmanji had so much to say about Hindu society at the same time. So this was a kind of a straddling period where lots of people wrote to and about each other. And that's the kind of corpus that I don't think I've cracked at all. I mean, I don't think I, it's physically was possible for me to 
be able to look at the entire context in um, the whole of Bombay Scottish, Scottish mission and um, all the other texts. But I think I looked at some of the primary materials and to look for interrelationships between the two in order to write a critical biography. Well, the best books, in, in my view, are beginnings. They're, they're, the best books are always beginnings, uh, whether it's of, of a particular thing that hasn't really been studied before or a particular mm -hmm. direction in, 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 you know, in a field that's been well studied. Yeah. And so uh, certainly perfection or even comprehensiveness is not the mark of a good book. Um, so let's just contextualize this sort of, okay, so people are listening to this. They've heard about this character, Baba Padmanji. So this is colonial India. Uh, around when did he live? And what would you say he was, uh, what was his driving mission in his times? Hmm. So he was born in 1831. And um, after a sort of uh, beginning education period um, at home, and he was from Belgao, he was from a small uh, place, which is now in Karnataka, but was that time in Bombay Presidency. And um, and then he went to Bombay for his further education and he entered the uh, Bombay Scottish Missions Free Church Institution. There, of course, he met, uh, at the same time, he joined a reform group. There was a group, not reform, it was a discussion group. It was called the Paramhans Mandali. The Paramhans Mandali started at around 1850. They were all students from the same kind of school background, you know, these like the Free Church Mission, then there was the Robert Money School. There were these three, four schools in Bombay that were from. So all of these people joined and they were, they wanted to reform and they wanted to break caste and they wanted to do all these things, but they were against conversion. And Padmanji joined the group and because of the kind of uh, anti or the antagonism that he met there, he, he left the group. Now, the same group later on that got disbanded in about 1851 or so, regrouped as the Prarthana Samaj later on in 1867. And by then, he, he was very angry with them. And he had anyways left them. And he joined. It was more of, I think he, he responded a lot to the fact that people hated converts. People hated Christians. They couldn't do much about European missionaries. But whenever they found the convert, they... they um, uh, poured out all their scorn or all their hatred of missionaries who were seen as being embroiled with the colonial project. They poured that same scorn out on missionaries, uh, sorry, converts. And I think slowly this started making him feel a bit angry. He started engaging a little bit with the converts, their ideas, and uh, especially the idea of feminism, of Christian feminism, of the reform of women in Hindu society. And this led him to sort of write that book on Vidori marriage that is quite seminal. And uh, it's the first novel in India. And he wrote that in 1857. And it was an interesting period in which he wrote that novel because it was also a period of nascent nationalism in Bombay presidency. So um, with the upheaval against the colonial presence and the British presence and so on. So in a sense, um, I think what moved him was the whole idea of engaging with something that was denounced and reviled and hated by everybody. 
and he wanted to see it for what it was and he became its champion by trying to defend it and by trying to defend people whom he thought had converted but had not done anything wrong. They were also trying to reform society but reform society from the, from the position of being Christians and being very westernized in their approach towards equality and you know, castelessness and all these kind of issues that he kind of slowly grew into them and became their champion. And uh, so, so in a nutshell, is it fair to say that he's a, a native Maharashtrian who became a Christian convert? Yeah. And who then became a missionary? Yeah. He, Great. So, so we, have, we have this thrust of his life and life's work. Would you say that he was uh, perhaps a, an apologist, a provocateur? Of, uh, the, what would you say was the, the sort of ethos of, of what he was doing with his social context at the time? Yeah, I think he was... Um, so uh, um, a Christian apologist, he certainly was, because he really believed in the project of uplift, uplifting society uh, of that time, which involved the reform primarily for him, the reform of women. He felt that Marathi society, I mean, this was a period, his, his education and his entire sort of youth was a period in which uh, there was a large variety of rancor. There was a large amount of rancor in Brahmin society after the fall of the Peshwai. The Peshwai, as uh, we all know, this was this Hindu Brahmin, very strong kind of Maratha empire. The, and um, after the fall of the Peshwai, there was a lot of Hindu Brahmin rancor about the British presence. Now, Padmanji grew up in that period. And on top of everything else, he supported the Christian cause. So he took the social reform idea of Christianity as a place where all these Brahmanical rules about widow remarriage, all these Brahmanical rules about child marriage, uh, the Hindu or Brahmin um, sort of focus on purity and on ritual and how all this became combined with nationalism in the Bombay presidency. He was against that bulwark. He was against that very watertight kind of upper caste bulwark that still had this residual charm of the Peshwai. They held, there was a nostalgia for Brahmin rulership. And this came up also in a big way um, in the 20th century again. I mean, there was a lot of Hindu masculinism in the 20th century again with Bal Gangadhar Tilak and all this, the whole idea of culture, of, of, uh, of a Brahmin past, of a very grand past, all these things were very strong in Padmanji's youth. And he stood against it as a Christian convert to say that you may bring back the Peshwai, but what will you do with the women who are dying on the street corner? What will you do with the hundreds and hundreds of little girls who are widowed? What will you do with... He brought up social issues and for him, Christianity and conversion became a kind of panacea. It became a way in which women could reform and women could get educated and women could remarry because there was no uh, sort of purity or pollution issue. And he supported um, Ishwar Chandra Vidya Sagar a great deal because the actual Widow Remarriage Act was 
Vidyasagar's uh, entire social and legal kind of activism in Bengal. So Padmanji was a great, was a staunch supporter of Vidyasagar's. And uh, I, it won't be an exaggeration to say that this first novel, this Yamuna Pariyatan, this first novel he wrote, I think it's, as I read it, it's a social legal treatise in support of Vidyasagar only. So in that, uh, he, he supported all these reform ventures that did not romanticize Hindu Brahminism, especially for the lives of women. And he, um, for example, he was very much against the residual courtly culture of Bombay presidency, which in the Peshwai period, you know, you had courtly, you had courtesans, you had dancers, you had entertainers, you had singers. And um, in the rural areas, you had tamashas, you had these agrarian communities hiring dance, dancing girls and these little troops and drama, skit, dancing, sexualized entertainment. He was very much against it because it exploited orphan women. It exploited the trafficking of women. It, ex it meant that women who were being tortured as widows in their family ran away from home and joined these groups. They went to cantonment towns, grew their hair back and entered brothels. So the torture was so high for them and he, his, all his books are about the torture that women go through in Brahmin society. And he wanted that the reform should be that that was at that point championed by missionaries saying that you have to break caste, you have to break all these stigmas surrounding women's lives, and you have to allow women to leave all these Brahmin ideas behind. Uh, it was considered sinful for women to learn how to read and write. He was a great proponent that he, they should go to school. Why can't they go to missionary schools and learn English? and learn or to read and write, learn arithmetic, learn all these things. So in a sense, uh, the Christian part of it was, a, was part of the whole colonial and missionary ethos in which all these things were being said by the missionaries. And you had Hindu Brahmins in the Bombay presidency very deeply against it, saying, no, no, I mean, this is a very wrong thing and this shouldn't happen. So, so he was also a product of his times. Yes, you know, there's so many, many, many fascinating um, issues here. One question that may come to mind is, you know, certainly there have been and there are and there will be individuals who wish to reform Hinduism, as with all religious traditions, uh, particularly something so textured as Hinduism. And um, if one were to say, well, listen, why did he, why was his vision of um, 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 reformation of, of Hindu society so necessarily implicated in Christian conversion? They seem to be two sides of the same coin for him. And yet, um, was that simply because of the time and space and the context that he had? Was that because of his own schooling? Was that, why, why was it such that he couldn't, um, he couldn't talk about or affect social reform without insisting on Christian conversion. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think what often happens with this question is that this question is, um, there's a naturalization of uh, patriotism uh, by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. There's a naturalization, uh, there's an anti-colonial stance was pretty much naturalized. It was obvi obvious. And so in a sense, 
to be a reformer, you need not become a Christian. It op reforming obviated Christianity. In Padmanji's time, it was not so. You have to still imagine a moment where nationalism and patriotism was not, especially the kind of patriotism that was within the context of Hindu Brahminism, which was connected to the Peshwai. You still had families that were connected for generations with the Peshwai who had lived uh, under the administrative fold of the Peshwai. And it was very difficult for everybody to just say, okay, now we become reformers. Because there was that, uh, because the colonial defeat was very high, the rancor was very high, and it was very unfair for them that uh, everybody, the Peshwa was deposed and just imprisoned somewhere, and everybody was supposed to now become part of it. It was very difficult. And so um, that was not a time in which nationalism or patriotism was naturalized for everyone. It was a time when um, it became a repository of a certain caste. In Maharashtra, nationalism is very closely implicated with Hindu Brahminism. Now, there were so many people like Padmanji and other converts for whom this entire, especially those also that, who came from a lower caste or who were women, people like Pandita Ramabai later on, who could not really uh, see eye to eye with that variety of Hindu Brahminism, which was very much connected to the past. So for them, conversion became the pinnacle of reform, that they felt that just being a reformer was a way of being neither here nor there. Just being a reformer and retaining your Hindu Brahmin identity meant that you could switch sides conveniently whenever you wanted. It meant that you gave a lot of lip service in um, big letters in newspapers saying women's conditions should be reformed. But nobody came forward to marry a widow because they still wanted to have pure Brahmanical marriages. But Manji married three times. He married three times and uh, two of his wives, both of them were from compromised backgrounds. They were single women. And so he was calling out to each and every reformer to, if they were truly reformed, then they should leave the Hindu Brahminism and all its rituals and deities and purity and impurity aside. And they should come forward and break the rules and show through their own life that they had transformed their life. And that this was the vision of a new India where God did not have to be worshiped through blood sacrifices or by torturing the women in your family. You could pray, you could be religious, and at the same time, you could be patriotic. So in a sense, for his generation between the 1830s and the 50s, which was still defined by the Second Charter Act, where missionaries began their institutions, educational institutions, this was still a time when he felt that uh, being a Hindu reformer basically meant that you could conveniently stay out of taking a stand because when it came to you taking a personal stand of marrying a widow yourself, you backed out because it was not done. You just said it on paper. So there were lots of critiques of people like Loka Hitavadi. This was a big social reformer at that time, but he was a Hindu. He never came forward to do anything in his own life. He only wrote. So um, 
in a sense, what Padmanji was trying to say all through the paratexts of the stories he wrote and the narratives he wrote was, when will our youth come forward? When will they, how can you say that the salt can be extracted from the sea and write a big book about it, but not come forward to extract that salt yourself? How will you eat that salt? He kept giving these examples of salt. And there's something very interesting that Gandhi picked up later, but um, th that's, that's quite a lot that's there in nearly all of his little introductions, that he wanted people to break these Brahmin rules, become something else, become more humanistic. So what if you married a widow? So what if you took in her child? So what happened if uh, you uh, were to suddenly break all these family rules? So in a sense, he was not just a rebel, he was a kind of a revolutionary in which he felt that Brahminism didn't have the potential to change. It was too full of fears about what was pure and what was impure and which woman was pure. And you had to have a small seven-year-old virgin girl and you had to... So in a sense, he it took a lot. He borrowed a lot from the young Bengal movement, this uh, um, Krishnamohan Banerjee in Bengal who wrote similarly, also product of Scottish mission, as Padmanji himself was, but much earlier than Padmanji. So Padmanji took a lot from his books. And it's the same idea of how Kulinism worked against women and why couldn't we break society? Why couldn't we break the Brahmanical sort of, why was every lower caste or middle caste person going towards Brahmin rituals? Why couldn't they break it? What was there in the Brahmin rituals? And in this, what happened was that uh, in Maharashtra, at least it was the Hindu Brahmins with the Peshwai background who were very invested in nationalism. And so they looked at all these converts as betrayers, as if converting was treason. Like it was treason and they, they, had, they had no care for society and nation and community. Certainly he would have been a great threat to the status quo of his day. So, so let's talk a little bit more about his reception, if you will. Yeah, he was very much hated also. I mean, for example, when he wrote, um, <coughs> when he wrote Yamuna Pariyatan, <coughs> excuse me, um, he, was, he was criticized a lot for uh, what many of his Hindu readers considered to be an obscene book. Now the book, the book does have a rather uh, provocative language, but um, because it describes the sexual frustration and the physical hardships that widows went through. Now, he collected all these narratives from he and his friends. They did a lot of research for this book and he collected a lot of narratives from widows. And he wrote very frankly, almost brutally about the way these widows were uh, ill-treated, molested, and the fact that they were purely frustrated with their lives without children and husbands. And um, it was a shock. It was a shock to many of his readers to suddenly locate all these experiences or the potential of these experiences suddenly in the widows in their own families. And that the widows in their own families may have had these thoughts and may have had these desires and may have had these uh, doubts. Should they run away? What should they do? Should they enter prostitution? 
So his book was called out a lot as a very lascivious book. Some people did not want it to be claimed as the first Marathi novel ever saying, oh, uh, will the first Marathi novel be, and such a, and the first novel in India itself, uh, should it be a book that is so vulgar? And so there was a lot of debate and there was a lot of opposition to him as well. And um, uh, I think he was retrieved a little bit in the later day uh, post-colonial uh, period when uh, big theorists like Bhalchandra Nemade uh, sort of uh, celebrated Padmanji as a realistic author who wrote about the real brutalities of women's lives and um, who could be seen as the vanguard or the trailblazer of post-colonial Dalit literature, post-colonial feminist literature, where women or Dalit communities came out to talk about their horrible frustrations with Hindu Brahminism, with masculinity. So he was later retrieved by writers like Nemade, who, um, as you know, is a big prize winner, literary theorist, who looked at, who saw Padmanji's writings for the first time as a realism, as a, as a trend in realism and truly modern because it sort of set the tone for post-colonial literature. And he was writing so early, he was writing in the first part of the 1850s, uh, 1800s. So um, in that sense, um, the reception in the 1800s was pretty devastating especially since many widows also came out to say that they did not wish to remarry. He wanted every widow to remarry and they did not have the wish to remarry. And he talked about the corruptions of pilgrimage towns, places like Kashi, uh, Pandharpur, and uh, these places which were hotbeds of uh, sort of where widows congregated and were sexually exploited by the priestly community in these places. This was of course very provocative for the priestly community who felt that, um, and Padmanji uh, stood outside Christianity while doing it. Uh, sorry, stood outside Hinduism while doing this. So he was not an apologist for Hinduism at all. He was actually saying that all these so-called pure places look there and see how many women are exploited there and kept as mistresses by the priests there in these towns and how they are ill-treated and how they beg and how they are how they live an absolutely miserable life yeah, so the, yeah then the next uh, that quite relates to the next question that i have in, in your perspective um was his interest in the plight of widows and um this, what we would think of as maybe as feminist concerns um, did this come from a particular formative experience? Was, was it just how he was wired? Was this just a very convenient way of exposing the ills of Brahmanism? Like, could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's based in his personal experience, though uh, he has never uh, accepted this. I mean, there is no place in Padmanji's work where he ever, or his autobiographies, his autobiographical text where he ever says that uh, this is because of my experience. See, Padmanji was married at a young age. He was a child, he was 14 years old and his wife was even younger. Now, I think he was in, he was very fond of his wife. Now, in the meanwhile, he converted. 
he converted and she was 13 or 14 and he was 18 or 19, something like that. And the couple had made a big plan to run away to the mission chapel and convert there. And uh, she had agreed. And just uh, two days before he, the plan was to fructify, her father came from Bombay and took her back with him there. Uh, uh, with her, he, he took her back with him to Bombay, her father. And then after that, Padmanji rushed to Bombay. He tried to meet her in 100 different ways and her father wouldn't let him meet. Finally, he slapped a habeas corpus on her father saying, I mean, accusing her father of not allowing him to meet his wife. And he had hoped that she would uh, come to him. Uh, when asked by the magistrate whether she wanted to be reunited with her husband. Uh, she got very pressurized by her father. And in the court, she said that she did not want to return to him because he had converted to Christianity. This was a very big blow for him. And he wrote many letters at that time to his father, saying that now my wife will have to live like a widow all her life because of this. Um, Thing that she has done. She has now uh, succumbed to her father's and evil ways and uh, ploys and whatever. And that now she will be alone. I think he was very fond of her. And he really wanted her to come to join him. But he also wanted to convert. So and she had accepted. So it that, all that makes that makes that makes so much sense to my life coaching brain. I, I do one-on-one -on -one work with people and you've just illumined the fire in his belly of, of, you know, you know, and, and it's possible from competing forces to coexist. So it might well be that he was on this very humanitarian mission of exposing and, and ameliorating the ills of, of Hindu Brahmanism, be that as it may this trauma and this loss and this pointing the finger at this 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 the institution if you will or the face of the institution which now has condemned his beloved to a life as a widow this this is a driving force and this contextualizes for me why ironically he would then have this other form of male control to say no you must get remarried whether you want to or not it's fascinating. It really is. Yeah. And, you know, it became it became uh, even more obvious that she had capitulated in court because of her father's um, uh, control over her because she came back to him four years later when her father died. And she asked him to take her back. Now, he had already remarried by that time and he couldn't take her back because he was married again this was about four or five years later and it was very sad because uh, even uh, Padmanji's father uh, uh, offered to take care of her and take her home and she refused and she died in three four years after that so this created it was a waste of their romance, in a sense, it was a, a star-crossed lovers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so uh, oh, there's just so many intrigues about this character. Mm -hmm. um, 
who were his supporters? Who supported him? Yeah, this is very important because uh, he became a leader. He was not just, uh, there was a, so that, um, okay, so to put this into a little bit of a perspective in terms of religion, um, Protestant missionaries elicited conversion. But on the other hand, many Protestants did not, uh, many Protestant missionaries did not believe that a true change of heart could really happen. They did not believe converts when converts said that they could. Yeah. And in that way, conversion never ended for converts. You know, it's not as if they could just get baptized and start a new life. This was a lifelong proving and performing. And this was very anxious. Uh, I'm so sorry. I, I have to say, I'm not typically judgmental on this podcast, but that sounds like a version of hell to me. Yes. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds yes. like a specific loka hell realm. <laughs> it, it, it was hellish. It was hellish because there are so many small archival documents uh, where somebody who has been uh, 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 quite devoted for 50 years has suddenly been excommunicated because he started drinking. I mean, it was crazy. And it was really, yeah. So what Padmanji did was he played a very important role here. He was the poster boy of the Bombay Scottish. And uh, he had many networks among missionaries who were very high up. Now he became the champion of so many converts who hid behind him, for whom he vouched, for whom, for whose Christian conviction he vouched. So, so many converts uh, grouped in a way under his umbrella, you know, uh, and he vouched for them. So they were not exposed directly to a kind of cross-questioning by British missionaries constantly, uh, because some Protestant missionary may have doubted the conviction of one person. So this person now had somebody to go to who would vouch, who would write letters for him, who would write recommendations for him, who would come and argue on his behalf. So, so in a sense... Why did he have the clout to assuage their distrust? Because it seems that the cynicism is just part and parcel of the, the, the colonial encounter, the missionary, the missionizing enterprise. You know, um, we, we, we distrust you and in, 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 in Hindu forms of religion. Now that you're a Christian convert, we distrust the extent to which you're at, you've actually wholeheartedly converted. So then, so then how did he become their pope? Uh, why was he trustworthy? Yeah. yeah, it's an important question. Because uh, in the initial period when missionaries started proselytizing, Protestant missionaries started uh, proselytizing, they treated upper caste converts from very affluent backgrounds. They treated them as trophy converts. There is the, you know, there was the idea that a person from a lower caste family or a very poor background, if he converts, he will convert for material benefit. You know, there is a slur called rice Christians that has still continued in India today. People still say that. So in a sense, this whole idea of rice Christians was very high. And therefore what Protestant missionaries really appreciated was when people from very rich backgrounds, very affluent backgrounds, very high caste backgrounds, people like in Bengal, you had Michael Madhusudan Dutt, you had people like that with very, very uh, big families. Um, when they con converted, missionaries also felt that they had won 
in this whole conviction battle because you no longer needed to tempt a person who was affluent. That person could not just come to you because you gave some, you hung some carrot in front, dangled some carrot in front of them. So uh, Padmanji came from a very affluent family. And uh, though he was not Brahmin, he was uh, high caste. And uh, his father was a government servant in the public works department. They were very wealthy. He was very well educated. And uh, he was very opinionated. He was very articulate. He wrote a lot. And uh, this was very important for missionary leaders like uh, Reverend Wilson, Reverend Nesbitt, who were of the Scottish mission at that time. They became very enamored by somebody so articulate and so convinced as him. And slowly they allowed him to take up that intermediary role of a native missionary, under whose umbrella so many converts from less privileged backgrounds could come. He vouched for them. There are so many places uh, where he has written so, I mean, scores of recommendation letters for people. If you wanted that your son or your child should get educated, you go to Padmanji. He will get that child admitted into some school, look after him. So he became a local leader for converts who were hounded a lot, uh, at least in the first part of the uh, 1800s, the, before, the, before India became a crown colony. Um, there was a lot of hounding of converts. Um, and they really grouped a little bit under his sort of shelter that he provided. So in a sense, this was also the growth of the Indian Christian identity. You no longer were just a European when you were Christian. You could be a non-Hindu, non-Muslim, patriotic, reformist Christian who was held back by no barriers of Hinduism and no barriers about caste and no barriers about purity and who was really living very authentically that life of a revolutionary. So it, he was a very powerful and a very there was a lot of traction to his to the weights that he pulled. Oh, without question, he had gravitas. I mean, without question, he had a, a, a field. Uh, uh, I, I would infer a charisma uh, to 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 empower and activate his his oratory and his, his 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 communication prowess. Clearly, without that kind of charisma, you don't attract a following. Um, um, so I, I can, it's palpable how dangerous he would have been to the authorities mm. at the time. Um, one wonders about his, the motivation or the impulse behind conversion, spiritual experience, social strategy, teenage angst. <laughs> Do we know why he converted initially? Because this is before the, 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 the marriage and subsequent um, widowhood of his of his ex-fiancé. So, so, so what prompted the initial embrace of Christianity? Yeah, I've often thought about this myself, and this is a question that crops up also quite often. I have a, I, my answer is, um, it's a historical question. I mean, I feel that sitting from the kind of perspective that we do today, it's very difficult to imagine why somebody may have wanted to convert back then. Uh, and the kind of society and the education and the kind of social problems around and the kind of poverties. And I feel that this is a question I can't answer because I really can't identify 
with what that situation must have been, which was so personal that, uh, so this was a period in Padmanji's life between 1851 and 1854. He writes a lot about that period. Um, in his uh, um, autobiography and his, there are many autobiographical texts that he has written. So he writes quite a lot about that period actually. And it still says nothing because you, you feel that you can experience his conditions sitting now and you wouldn't have converted. But then that's the historical question. He was sitting back then. Yes, yes. You know, if I had to fathom a guess based on nothing but reading the book, I mean, clearly, I, this is not a field that uh, I'm an expert in. You know, I have some knowledge, obviously, in, in modern Hinduism, uh, one would hope. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. but, <laughs> but just um, the, the random sense that I get is there was some sort of discontent in terms of his social standing. Uh, perhaps he was didn't have the, the echelon he was looking for or the, or the wealth he was looking for. And, and this discontent and, and his, his, his inability to rise to maybe what he desired within uh, Brahmanical society or within uh, classical Hindu society, perhaps this was a pressure to be like, well, I'm going to opt out of this system and go to another system where I'm not capped in that way by my, my, my standing, my caste, my jati, my what have you. Now, just a random potential, who knows? No, that's what comes to mind. I, I, I think it's status. I mean, um, it's, the, it's the other side of what you have exactly said. So on the one hand, you have a frustration, there's something lacking, there's something missing. And... He found a way to be somebody in the Christian paradigm. Mm. He found a way where he could, he could leverage his natural skills and interests yes. without, without the social cap. Yes. And, and in so doing, it, then that became the enemy. You know, this yes. held me back. This, yes. this, this was the the this was the the situation my wife had to deal with. That became yes. the enemy, and then so the promised land to him was being freed of the shackles of caste. Yeah, and growing so much as an individual. It was no longer just because you came from a certain family or a background. You, it was it it was a very early kind of may even say a neoliberal paradigm. Yeah that you became somebody. And this was this education, the status, the kind of, uh, maybe it can be compared to how people from India would like to settle abroad today. It's exactly w this whole Without question. I mean, there are many reasons why people do that, whether it's financial, whether it's uh, uh, fleeing persecution, whether it's for their children. But without question, that's what I taste. I taste it. This is my way out. And then subliminally, he wouldn't admit to it subliminally, you know, uh, this, 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 this sort of latent, you know, West is best sort of, this is, a, you know, this, this is what civilization quote unquote or status looks like that we were, we're all unconsciously conditioned to believe. And many of us consciously believe. And so that's sort of what I taste in his, in uh, behind what he's saying, right? That's what I taste as the driving force His what's pushing him forward. But as you say, who knows? Yeah, and I think um, it's it's a little bit, it's exactly where the com complicatedness or the complexity comes up, where this whole idea of, okay, I will 
become an American or a Canadian or a European or a German like me, uh, where the whole idea is that, okay, we go somewhere else, but the status accrued is all about being an Indian. So I still feel that Padmanji's Christianity, the status accrued was that of a Hindu having done something really different. So yeah, I don't it's, think it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I don't think his Hinduness was ever completely gone. It remained. It's well, rem- one of the things I wanted to ask, just to give me a little bit of clar- clarity, both on perhaps a historical moment, but more so on and him. I I can't help it. I mean, I'm even an ethnographer at heart when it comes to historical figures. But like, what was he? Um, he's very good at pointing to uh, the shadow of tradition, right? Um, did he have positive things to say? Was he ever looking to Hindu Brahmanism or any form of Hinduism in terms of pointing to inspirations or or supports, or was it fairly one-sided? There was one complicating factor, I feel. Apart from his uh, love for his wife, so it was lost. But his father, now... Though Padmanji came from a very affluent family, he converted in 1854. He has written about his father, his relationship with his father, who continued to support him, who, though his father was very hurt and shattered by uh, Padmanji's conversion, I mean, there's a small letter his father has written to him saying, you have gone towards the light, but you have left us behind in shadow. You know, this was the letter his father wrote to him at the moment of conversion saying, in a sense that you've taken a selfish decision, you have left us, you know. So though his father was very heartbroken at his conversion, there was no excommunication from family. Padmanji's father kept on supporting him. Padmanji's father visited him, the family came together again. So in the typical way, that hounding didn't happen from the family side. There were people from within the Brahmanical community who said, yeah, yeah, he has converted. And in fact, like his father-in-law, who did not allow the daughter to meet again. But the bright spark that remained, the sort of light over the horizon in a way, is that Padmanji's father was his, uh, was his supporter and was able to reunite him and his wife. Padmanji married again and... Um, His father hosted a grand celebration for him and invited the whole community and very few people turned up, but his father took the effort and remained close to his son. So in one sense, I think this sustained Padmanji. I think he didn't sort of go nuts because of this, because he was pretty much uh, one, one track with his ideas and his anger about what Hindu Brahmanical communities do too. But it was his father. And um, actually there's this parable in the Bible called the prodigal son. And he has written a whole story about a third person, but he has written about his, the, the recognition of the father's love and the return to the father's house and the acceptance and love that the father gave. He has written it in that story. I think that story is the father, his relationship, his very, very strong and deep and rooted kind of poignant relationship with his father. 
So I think that was what really kept him going. His father really was the central figure in his life and remained throughout. Uh, so I think that was something that was good as part of his relationship with the Hindu community. Fascinating. Um, I don't know where the time has gone. Was there anything else? Um, <laughs> well, I, I sort of stayed in the weeds a little more than usual in terms of the nuts and bolts, but I, I, I imagine or hope that it was rendered accessible for, for a broader audience nevertheless. Was there anything else about the book that you hope we touch on today? Um, I feel that a um, lot of nationalism, okay, I feel a kind of upper caste nationalism today it raises the contributions made by converts towards reform and towards bettering Hindu society or bettering the position of women like Padmanji did. So I think a lot of it is erased uh, by the understanding that Christians or Muslims could never have actually contributed to nationalism or patriotism at all. And I think this is what drives me a little bit forward to make it a little bit more inclusive, to say that there were different, various different communities and non-upper castes as well, who were very in invested in bettering society, very invested towards working, towards community reform, towards working, towards progress. And I feel they should not be erased through nationalism that doesn't or that may perhaps have the potential of erasing the contribution of Christians. So I think that was what was the driving I, I wanted I, I feel interested in alternative discourses of patriotic sort of developments and because the colonial period was that people were very aware that there's colonialism and there's the white person and they were very aware and there were many groups who were working towards this, towards reform. And I feel Christians shouldn't be erased totally. That's my interest. I understand. Well, thank you for sharing. And just one thought uh, comes to mind regarding what you've just said in the entire enterprise of the podcast. And I think there's, there's a parallel there. Um, without question, within the, the Hindu world, um, there's so much baggage and um, anger and dismay and discomfort the, 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 the colonial legacy is um, there's still lots of processing to be done on an individual and a collective and a global level so unsurprisingly uh, folks might get triggered when one might say hey let's think about the christians or let's let's let, let's honor the contribution of the christians so clearly there, there'll be emotionality there you know, uh, New Books in Hindu Studies is a little more defined and easier to track, and there's a particular audience who would be interested in all things Indic and Hindu. Part of the strategy of broadening out to Indian religions to include the odd Sikhism monograph or, or Christianity, Islam in India, or Judaism in India, part of the strategy of doing that, despite perhaps the discomfort among some of the audience, some, is because I view it as my dharma in some sense to facilitate conversation. My role is to showcase that monograph, that project. You know, 
the guest is God, and then I move on. My role is not to adjudicate or critique. That is not my dharma as a podcast host. It's to facilitate conversation, because if we can't facilitate interreligious dialogue within the subcontinent or the Indic world, how do we do it as a globe? And so, yeah, so I really much appreciate. I really appreciate your thoughts on that. Okay, excellent having you on. For those of you listening, we've been talking to Dr. Deepra Dundekar about her fascinating, uh, rich work on this figure called Baba Padmanji, um, uh, Vernacular Christianity in Colonial India. It's a 2021 Rutledge publication. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the religious historical moment you're in and the ways in which it shapes you. Take care.